Welcome to the podcast of data and analytic in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we have got Sanjit Tang. Sanjit is the founder of Ufus Capital, based in Silicon Valley. Prior to starting his own company, Sanjit was the managing director of the investment at the Intel Capital. I think some of the biggest takeaway that you want to learn from Sanjit in this episode is about how you as a Fortune 500, how you as a non-software company should be tapping into this specialized analytic company or how you should be tapping into the specialized smaller company who has got analytic solution in your vertical and how you could build their expertise and some of the solution into your company, in your organization and building them into your product. Over the next 10, 20 or 30 years, the one, the strongest who survive will be the one who will be adapting how to use data science in order to better serve their customer. With his investment and with his knowledge of the software engineering and the AI, Shanjit will share with you what are the thinking behind of those collaboration that you need to have and also what he's seeing is already currently happening in the market. If you have any question for me or Sanjit, please feel free to send us a voice message on the ankle. Thank you. Hi, Sanjit. Welcome to the Analytics Show podcast. I'm so excited to talk with you for today's episode. Yes, thank you so much, Jason. This is a very unique Podcast, thank you so much for inviting me. Honor is all mine. Really appreciate it. <laughs> I can assure you the honor is mine. Let's start with something a little bit light before we move on to all the stuff that you do for your career and your company right now. So you have the father's engineering PhD from the University of Illinois at Chicago. How did you make that happen? Well, I, you know, back in the day when I was in grad school, I was extremely fascinated by research and making an impact. And I wanted to start the research without actually going through coursework. I did the coursework, but I thought I could do it in parallel. So I really followed the paradigm of, hey, how do you learn on the go without a teacher or a classroom environment? You don't have to wait for class to learn something. And that's how I was able to accelerate. That's one of the reasons how I was able to accelerate my PhD time. And uh, I was able to get an engineering PhD in two years, nine months after bachelor's degree. I also felt that some students take it a little easy when it's in grad school, I mean. And I was like, no, that's, I, I would rather go very aggressive on my PhD and still drive good results. And I think that's uh, how it panned out finally. So I'm very happy and something I'm quite proud of as well, even today. And the research was also recognized by a few societies in the US. So it went, all of that uh, went very well. 
but thank you for uh, reminding me of uh, fond memories <laughs> from grad school days <laughs> i think it's always good to start with how you start your career because i think a lot of time it set the foundation and how you think it shaped your thinking in terms of the later part of your career now that follow with my subsequent question is so early in your career you were an engineer so my question then is how does that set you apart in the vc world of where you are in now and help you as a vc as a venture capitalist that understand the technology first hand I think being an engineer has helped me tremendously in my venture capital career. Whenever I look at a startup, I first look at the technology and I try to understand what they are building. And I don't just stop at a high level. Somebody pitching saying, hey, I am a data analytics startup. Okay, great. But what do you do? What database do you use? What's your infrastructure? If you use Hadoop, if you use a different data structure, what database do you use what data structures do you use etc and why so i think the engineering background has given me the aptitude to analyze companies from a technology standpoint and on top of that over the years i have developed somewhat of a business acumen to understand what the company can achieve financially as well so i think once you start marrying the technology aspects with the business aspects that's when you can really drive good companies and you can help them also investment is not just about choosing good companies to invest into but also helping them grow and if you understand the technology side then you can help them grow as well give them strategic direction from a technology stack standpoint as well and that has helped me i feel achieve one exit every year in the world of venture capital which is quite rare and then this is in companies like docusign or pinterest etc over the years so being an engineer i think is at the heart of being a venture capitalist you spent close to 18 years at intel corporation on various roles including managing and investment director of intel capital tell us about your major investment in that phase i presume that i think you just touch on that which is docusign and pinterest was that right and would you like to tell us a little bit more about that yeah yeah absolutely yeah i i spent quite a few years at uh, intel and intel capital i think uh, overall it was a fantastic experience learned a lot uh, hopefully contributed as well and was able to invest in some uh, ground breaking companies like i mentioned docusign then uh, a company called body labs that was uh, acquired by amazon within 2 years of my leading the series a deal then uh, companies like cloudera mongodb etc but uh, i learned from a lot of these companies about how to build a successful startup A lot of the entrepreneurs have gone through journeys, and a journey of a startup CEO is never linear. It goes in a Brownian motion for most part. You learn from how they think, their mindset is, and how they make strategic decisions. So I got tons of learnings from, especially the startups that I invested into over the years. On that note, when you were talking about how the way they think 
and the thinking structure. What is the key thing that you would say that you learn about the thinking that they need to be able to create and run a successful startup? Yeah, this is this is a very good question. What I learned is startups can succeed only if they improve some figure of merit by 10x. That is very important. If you look at any product out there that is successful, you should ask yourself which figure of merit improved by 10x. Is it cost? Is it convenience? Is it a new feature set? Is it some other capability or battery life, etc.? Some figure of merit has improved by 10x. And that's something that Andy Grove, who was a co-founder of Intel, used to talk about as well, that successful products improve some figure of merit by 10x. And I think that applies to startups as well. That has been the biggest learning for me when I watch these startups. They try, successful startups always strive to understand how they are improving at least one figure of merit by 10x. And some of them also understand that, hey, startup success is simple. Are you invited to the party? And then if you are invited, can you perform at the party? So all of those things combined are very important for startup success. That's been a key learning for me over the years. I'm sure that would be helpful for your company now. So your company, you first capital offer venture as a service model. Is it the first to come up with this model? Would you please explain? Yeah, it is an innovative model. Yes, Jason, it is an innovative model. It is actually a disruption in the overall, I would say, venture capital industry and specifically in the corporate innovation space. And the way the model works is we cater to corporations, mid-sized and large corporations by bringing very dedicated investments to them. And we can do it in a fund vehicle. We have some other structures as well. But the key is to make sure that there is strategic value to the corporation by doing the investments in addition to getting financial returns. Otherwise, for a corporation, getting purely financial returns is not enough because it's not going to eventually move the needle for them for the corporation's overall revenue or net income picture. So what we do is we are able to drive dedicated investments in the specific areas of interest of the corporation. So we actually first work with the corporation to understand what they are interested in. And then we bring very targeted startups in that specific focused sector. And with that approach, we have been able to sign over 10 corporations till now. And we, I would say our rate of signing has been now one corporation a month. And it's been a very good run so far, and we look to continue that. So that is venture capital as a service for corporations model that we are driving with you first capital. And it is run by me and my partner and wife, Dr. Ekta Jang, who is also ex-Intel employee. 
Is that okay to give us an example of the large corporate or mid-sized corporate using that specific startup that you guys make that and using that as a use case to describe to the listener, how could that work for them? Absolutely. So we have been uh, lucky to have signed up uh, several corporations. Some of them have gone public with us as well, but we have signed up corporations like Dow DuPont, which is over 100-year-old corporation, Rico, which is a large Japanese corporation, Google Cloud is working very closely with us. There are other corporations as well, like Hexaware or Tata Communications, etc. And an example I would give is for a company called Dow DuPont, like I mentioned, they in fact went public. We were featured in Venture Beat as well for this. They announced funding opportunities, investment strategies with us. And they were interested in artificial intelligence and Internet of Things. And Dowdy Pond is an excellent company, and they are doing very well by themselves, but they felt there is a need to further jack up their trajectory. And that's where we come in to help out by bringing external innovation opportunities that they can tap into, either for investment, or sometimes it could also be an M&A opportunity. So that, that is one, and it has, there is a press release jointly between you first Capital and Dow DuPont on venture capital as a service model as well. So folks are welcome to read that online. And through the partnership, we have been able to make a pretty big impact for Dow DuPont, hopefully. Wonderful. I will absolutely share that link to that article as well. Now... In a high level, how is UFO's capital different from other corporate ventures, NDP, whether it's external or internal? Then? Especially a lot of these large corporations, they themselves also have their own VCR. Yeah, no, that, that's a good question. You know, most corporations either have a VCR or they are looking to create their VCR. But the reality is, it is not catering to all of the needs of the corporation. Number one, the business units have a variety of needs and the corporate venture capital groups are very small in size. So they are not able to cater to all the needs of the business units. That's one. Second is a lot of the times the corporate venture capital arm does not have access to the right startups at the right stage. There are several startups who do not go to corporations early on, especially at seed, series A, sometimes even series B stage. They go to corporations at very late stage. And by then there is very little that a corporation can do strategically in terms of influencing the direction of the startup. So that is another reason why we exist. In fact, most of the corporations we work with, they all have a venture capital group or some kind of innovation group to serve their uh, corporate needs. So that's another reason. And then mostly corporate venture capital groups focus on N plus two technologies, groundbreaking, path-defining, but very futuristic technologies we can focus on N or N plus one as well, depending upon the needs of the corporation. 
So there are several reasons why we exist, even though corporations have a venture capital group internally. So at U First Capital, you have a focus on AI companies that have deep domain expertise in various verticals. How do you shift out a viable AI startup? Yeah, that's a great question. You know what has happened over the years, I have noticed this. Five to 10 years ago, we used to have a wave of big data analytics companies. And every company would call itself, I'm a big data analytics company. <laughs> every, every startup would pitch like that. Then came the wave of artificial intelligence. And what happened is overnight, most startups did a cut and replace in their pitch decks. They replaced big data analytics with artificial intelligence. So now, all of a sudden, we saw a flood of artificial intelligence startups. And, you know, they get the domain names, xyz.ai and so on, just to drive the perception that they are an AI company. What we try to do as investors is we try to really understand which is a core AI startup versus just leveraging some AI features. Just doing basic big data analytics does not make a startup an AI company. Do you have AI algorithms at play? And are those your algorithms? And do you have fundamental data science algorithms at play? Are you using deep learning methodologies? Who is on the team that is an AI expert? What is his or her background? So we go a lot deeper into understanding the AI capabilities of the people and then the AI capabilities of the product. After that, we say, hey, okay, here is what we like, here is what we don't like from the standpoint of AI, I would say AI analysis of the startup. And then we have a discussion with the startup. This happens quite often, actually, because most companies are pitching themselves as AI companies. So we can sift through and we can sometimes look at the code as well and do a, at least a first cut analysis to say, hey, this code is just another analytics code or is it really using some methodologies like deep learning, as I mentioned. So there are many ways to sift through that model. Wonderful. Then on the flip note is then, how do you stay away from those who jump into the bandwagon of AI? Or maybe perhaps the advice you would give to the company who is jumping into that bandwagon? Yeah. The advice we give to those companies is, Fundraising is about building credibility with the investor. If you are not building that credibility, you are already losing out. So calling yourselves as an AI company where you are not an AI company does not help you. So what we look for is which are the true AI companies and companies that can, you know, this is more a generic advice, but companies that can call out their strengths as well as weaknesses early on in the diligence process. Those are the companies we like. It helps the startups also because then investors are more interested in those companies from an investment standpoint. 
So I hope that helps answer your question, both from an AI bandwagon, jumping the AI bandwagon standpoint, as well as more generically as advice for startups. It certainly does. Now, over the last 20 years, many analytic software vendors have emerged and some of them are in the AI space, some of them the more of the traditional analytic space. Now, Tableau was recently acquired by Salesforce. Are you expecting more consolidation in the market where the heavyweight are making their move? I think so. I think what has happened in the last five or so years is most Fortune 500 corporations have realized that AI and data form the fourth revolution. We had the steam and power revolution back in the late 1700s. Then a century later, we had the industrial revolution when we talked about division of labor, mass production, electricity, all of that drove the industrial revolution. And then in the late 1900s, we have seen the production improvements. IT has come up. More automation has entered into production. But now, the next revolution that is already happening is the AI and data revolution. And companies that do not invent themselves will become dinosaurs. And companies that don't adopt AI will become extinct. So that is uh, very important and that's a very common subject matter in boardroom conversations nowadays. So what we see is most of the large corporations will first try to build their internal AI capabilities, but then after that they will try to acquire AI and analytics companies to augment these capabilities. So I I absolutely see more consolidation happening in these market where the Fortune 500 companies will make a move in acquiring these analytics and AI software vendors. I want to come back to that one in just a second, especially those Fortune 500 who are not the IT company, who are not the software company in acquiring some of these startups in the consolidation market. But I'll come back in a second. However, I do want to ask you that is, I think, well, we are yet to fully understand the economic impact of COVID-19. Well, I think it is going to be some challenging time ahead. However, it does create a lot of opportunity as well. So do you, however, expect that that will accelerate the market consolidation? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I think COVID-19 obviously has had a huge impact on mankind with so many deaths and people you know, losing jobs. So there are a lot of negative impact of COVID-19 that has happened. But looking at the positive side, COVID-19 has drove the adoption of digitization and data and AI pretty rapidly. In fact, most companies now, Fortune 500 companies, I mean, are thinking about life post-COVID and whether I will be relevant post-COVID or not. And because of that, they are trying to think, hey, how do I drive, how do I adopt digitization very fast? 
and not lose track of what is happening in the market already. You can look at the banking sector as an example. Banks nowadays tell people, hey, no, 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 don't come to the branches. We'll just do it online. We'll send you documents for signature over email, et cetera. Whereas earlier it used to be a pretty much of uh, an in-person experience. That is just one example. And because of this, and also keep in mind that if you look at the factory environments or wherever robotics can go in, think from this standpoint, human beings carry the virus. Machines do not. So all of a sudden, now the human being is a problem, whereas the machine is not the problem. So the more you can adopt machines in factories or anywhere else you can, the safer the environment is. And you can reopen your businesses as well. But machines have to, be, have to get smarter, which is where data and AI come into the picture. So that is very important to understand. And I see that the market consolidation will only accelerate due to COVID. Absolutely. Now, I want to tie all those few points together and ask this question, which is, especially in the large corporation where they are not the software vendor or they are not the software company. Uh, say, for example, if we take bank or insurer as an example, now, analytics are often carried outside of their core IT system and rarely built into their product. So when I say product, I mean like, for example, their deposit account at the insurance that they sell is often outside of it rather than, for example, Facebook, everything, everything that we do already have the analytic built into the system and the product itself. But my question then is in terms of incorporating and embedding the analytic, the AI into the products, especially how some of these large corporations are now acquiring or trying to build their internal capability. Who do you see will be playing the role? Would that be the corporation itself or working with the software vendor or the integrated solution provided by the small specialized company? Yeah, it's it's a good question and a good insight as well, Jason. You know, when corporations try to build their own AI products, they realize they lack two things. Number one, they, they don't have access to all the data that they need for building that product. That's one. And data is the base needed to train the algorithms. Number two, they also realize that they don't have the talent to build the right AI products. And if I look at the AI world, what I expect will happen is that AI talent will become the bottleneck for most of these corporations. And because of that, they will end up acquiring more and more companies that have the right AI expertise, analytics and AI expertise. And then secondly, they will also acquire companies where the company has access to the right data under their umbrella. So I see that there is a big 
needs for vendors who have access to either the talent or the data or both ideally and those vendors will be in a very controlling position in this analytics slash ai landscape and especially if you look at fortune 500 beyond the big companies like big software companies like facebook google amazon you know all of these you see a long list of companies legacy companies who have been around for a while but have really not adopted ai and those are the ones that will have to acquire ai vendors to drive the next phase of growth for the company that seems like you had already seen this path back in 2016 already so in 2016 you wrote and compare machine learning ai to linux and say it is well down the open source path as well as being integrated into the product i think as we enter to a new decade how do you think the overall progress on this front since 2016 yeah great observation and thank you for bringing that out again jason yes In 2016 I did feel that AI is evolving more into a community approach rather than a proprietary approach. Companies were starting to share algorithms, you could see open source algorithms on image recognition from Google or Facebook etc and you could see that companies have realized that algorithms are becoming commoditized. There's no point in keeping the algorithms proprietary. so companies just wanted to open source that so that the community can actually further improve the algorithms the gold for the companies is data that is actually needed to train the models then number 2 the trained models and then number 3 the talent like i talked about so that picture has not really changed since i wrote that article and i think that is only accelerating now because no company can do can build the entire ai stack internally so they will have to collaborate they'll have to open source what they have they'll have to adopt open source solutions as well in summarizing of what you were saying and also especially the market consolidation i am curious to know what is stopping the heavyweight from the outside the us to acquire this mid-sized analytic software vendor or this specialized ai vendor you know it depends upon the country sometimes there are regulatory pressures sometimes the companies outside the us they think differently they have cultural barriers in adopting us companies or acquiring us companies sometimes it just doesn't fit and there are many cases where there are outside corporations that probably want to acquire us companies but then it's not just about acquiring what do you do post merger how do you drive integration how do you drive the adoption of those technologies in the local geographies where these corporations belong to and so on so it's not an easy answer and it's not just about acquiring it's also about acquiring and driving the returns that you probably promised to the shareholders so there are several barriers before an outside 
corporation can start acquiring U.S. companies. U.S. is the hotbed of innovation in the world. And within U.S., you can look at geographies like Silicon Valley, but there are other places like New York, etc., that have done considerably well as well. And these places have generated companies that have gone global and are having a huge impact. So there is an opportunity. And there is, I would say, increasingly more than just acquisition, there is an opportunity for collaboration between different nations. Companies can collaborate across geographies, and that helps U.S. companies to expand into new markets, helps their revenue base, helps expand their revenue base, and they also learn from those local geographies. So there are many approaches besides acquisition that companies can take both from U.S. side as well as from outside the U.S. side. That being said, it sounds like that could be opportunities for the regional software company to come up on the top within their own region outside of U.S. then, in, in given of what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is definitely an opportunity for a company to come up with a regional strategy and drive progress within that region. And once they have achieved a large amount of scale within that region, they will actually have the cost advantage, especially if uh, this is a company based in high population countries like India, China, Indonesia, Brazil, etc., And these companies can drive economies of scale within their regions and then expand to the West. And they will have cost advantage. They may have to tune their solutions for the Western markets, but uh, they will come in with an advantage. But they have to make sure they cater to the local base first and drive localized solutions first. So there are huge opportunities. And especially if you, if you talk about data, data analytics, And yeah, you can leverage those to drive better consumer experiences as well. It's not just for enterprise, it's also for consumers. How do you drive the next Netflix in India or other countries? How do you drive the next messaging platform beyond the next WhatsApp in those countries? It, it's not just about an app. It's the engine behind the app which gives differentiation to these countries. So there is a big opportunity, absolutely. You can look at the recent example of Indian company called Reliance Geo. Yeah, Reliance Geo is now the largest mobile network operator in India. And they have over 380 million subscribers, all in India. And this is within just a handful of years only and uh, based on those numbers because the population of india is so huge and they have over 380 million subscribers they are the third largest mobile network operator in the world and they were very late to the party there were existing network operators already in india so they launched in 2016 and within three years they reached that scale within india and now they have raised a ton of funding for the next phase of growth and companies like Facebook, Google, some of the largest private equity funds, all of these corporations have invested in Real Reliance Geo because they see this as the gateway to the Indian market. And so it's a perfect example of 
local innovation, driving growth in India, and then starting to collaborate with the Western corporations and the Western uh, private equity investors as well. I want to use that Reliance Geo as an example and dwell into that topic a little bit further. I think on the other token, while this new company, where they started in India or China or Indonesia, where the local population is so large already, what that basically means, though, at the same time, is that as much as they can rely on the local growth to grow so huge, it seems like from the long run perspective, sometimes it stops them thinking about global at the start, simply because the local population is so large already where they are able to achieve massive, massive growth. And they often, they don't feel like they need to venture outside of this respective country. So to some extent, it hinders their expansion. Now, I'm not suggesting that to be a massive company, you need to be running your corporation in 181 countries around the world. But I'm just trying to understand from the perspective that whole mindset, it's also hinder them stopping to expand the outside. Whereas if you come from mid-size of the population, say for example, well, US is not exactly mid-size, but at least they always have that need and that urge to venture outside in order to be able to achieve the same growth. Do you think that is the case that is happening in these regional country where the local population is so huge? Yeah, no, great question. You know, the local population is a big market to go after and typically the first market to go after for these companies. So you, we talked about Reliance Geo, then there are several such companies in uh, other countries as well, Indonesia, Brazil, China, etc. But I feel a lot of these companies, after they achieve some scale in their local region, they feel the urge to go to the West. It is for two reasons. One is for entering the Western market, but secondly, also to tap into the capital available in the Western markets. And they feel that if they are able to enter those markets, they will be able to raise capital much faster and drive success. Another reason why, especially the US, is a very important market for all of these companies, despite having local markets at scale, is that US is an early adopter market. So as the local companies are going after their own markets in their regions, they should experiment with entering the U.S. market because in the U.S., you know, even small startups can get business from large corporations. In the minds of the large corporations, there's a lot of value that small startups bring to the table. So they are able to drive success sometimes much faster in the Western markets than locally. So at times I've seen companies 
while driving customers in their local regions, they also start going after the US market. And I think it's a perfectly fine strategy. And once they are able to achieve some scale in either of the markets, the funding becomes very easy. You can see Reliance Geo, they raised over $20 billion in the last four months from 12 or 13 investors. So there is a, a lot of focus that they get from there. I suppose maybe the other question that I am curious to know, especially you, for the background that you come from, you understand both inside and outside of US is often, I feel that one of the biggest weapon that US has got is their media. What I basically mean is the media that US has got is actually covered in the entire world. So what is taught on CNN today, tomorrow, the rest of the world will equally find out. On the other hand, whatever is taught within the local media, next day or even next month wouldn't necessarily be known outside of the local country. Now, what I am trying to say that is often what I feel that the biggest advantage the US company would be able to get is true of this US media present where they got talked about, they got mentioned about, and they got all of this PR from the US media company that allowed them to accelerate much, much further within and outside of the US. My question then is for other local company, how do you think they could potentially think about tap into this advantage that they don't necessarily have them? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you have to generate success stories and give the material to media to be successful. Media is very important for a company to be successful and for that matter, for a nation to be successful as well. But you also need the right material behind it. And I, I feel uh, the overall mindset to stay ahead, to take risks, and to wear failure as a badge, all of that contributes to U.S. companies constantly innovating on what they do. That is something that companies need to understand outside the U.S. as well. You know, for example, Silicon Valley is not a place. It's a mindset. Silicon Valley is a mindset. And that mindset is hard to replicate in other geographies of the world. It's changing. I see Israel as a very good example of hotbed of innovation. We see other places as well. But the mindset is lacking still in lot of the other prominent geographies. And once you get into the mindset of the people on where to take risks, how to drive success, how to help each other like a village, that's when magic happens. And that's when you also drive repeated innovation, not just one-time success stories. So that I feel is what is needed for other nations to drive big companies to form. 
That is great advice. Now I want to finish this interview to a lighter note. Would you share some advice for the people who are in the tech to develop their career? Sure, sure. People who are in the tech, if you want to develop the career, depending on where you want to go, but I think there are some common pieces of advice that I learned over the years. I wish I would have learned early on in my career. Uh, one of them is success is 50% due to what you know and 50% due to who you know. You have to work on both fronts. One without the other is not enough. Think of yourself as a company developing a product, but you also have to market the product. And if you don't do it, nobody else will do it for you. So that's one piece of advice. And then, you know, I've seen a lot of people stagnate in their professional careers because they're not learning. They're not evolving. They're not taking risks. I've always followed a rule of one, one, one for myself. Every week, I meet one new person and learn one new thing from him or her. And it's about how do you drive yourself to be in the company of people where you feel uncomfortable. Great things never come from comfort zones. You learn from other people who are smarter than you or who know things that you don't know. So that's some piece of advice for people in the tech world. And irrespective of whether you want to stay in tech or go on the business side or do something else of your own, drive a startup, these are some fundamental pieces of advice that should be helpful to anyone, I would say. I can certainly attest to that. Now, what is your most important first principle? You know, one of the things I always think of is don't start with the solution. Start with questions. If you start with the right questions, you will get to the right answers. If you start with solutions, you'll never get the answers. And you know, our brain is tuned to absorbing knowledge and not thinking differently. So start questioning your brain, put an idea and exercise your brain muscle around that question. That'll make you think differently and also think in a, in a disruptive manner. Because you know, when we look at impossible, we look at a magician and feel that's impossible for us. But it is possible for the magician. So if it is possible for the magician, it is possible for us as well. That's as a principle. Those are a couple of principles, rather, that I try to follow. And those have helped me tremendously. What is one book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have? You know, there are a few books, but one that stands out is Peter Thiel's Zero to One. It's effectively notes on startups or how to build the future. And he used to teach this class at Stanford. And this is uh, some of the notes from that class. It's effectively, how do you build the future? And it's it really shines. And it, it's like a self-help book for entrepreneurs, for builders, and a future that only startups can build. And it's also a very good articulation of capitalism, which I think is a very important driver of success in the U.S. 
So it, it articulates capitalism in the 21st century economy very well. So that was very helpful for me, and I wish I would have read it much earlier in my career. Well, the book didn't come out way too early, though. <laughs> I know it came out like uh, six years or so ago, but something like that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sajid, for sharing your knowledge and experience about the VC world, especially in terms of the, all of these AI analytics startup and how are these are evolving, especially with the market being consolidated and also how the Fortune 500 would be able to tap into the expertise of this small specialized analytic company to build data science into their product. I, I think a lot of the C-level, especially if they are not in the, if they are not a software company, I, I think they would certainly find this useful and help them to think about how can they actually take their company and combine with technology. And I think that is probably what is going to be matter in terms of coming out on the top in the next 10, 20, or 30 years, i.e. how they can combine technology with the product and the services that they provide in their industry to serve the customer better. So it has been great talking to you. Thank you so much. No, it's an honor. Thank you so much, Jason, for uh, the great questions. And also, I agree with uh, the assessment you just gave as well. And uh, looking forward to seeing that story pan out. Wonderful. Thank you so much.